So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it. To the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we ask, was this truly your intention? Was this your plan? And as we read the words of scripture this morning, we we see a resounding yes. And so we ask, God, that you would Show up in these moments, for if you are not with us right here and right now, this is all in vain. But we pray that the distractions of this week, uh, the stresses of of our lives would subside for this brief moment while we consider your word, and that you would speak to us a truth that is greater than any truth surrounding us here in this moment. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our family has always gravitated for one reason or another towards Mount Hood. Even before our children were born, my wife and I have long had this deep affection for the mountain and being up in the mountains. And then once we had children, they, of course, adopted this uh, this mindset of being excited about the mountain so that our youngest daughter, when she was a bit younger, she would see it from afar. We're driving, you know, on the freeway and she might glance over and see it and she'd say, that's our mountain. To which we would all chuckle because in one sense, it's everybody's mountain. And, and in another sense, it's nobody's mountain. But But because we identified with it, in another sense, it is our mountain. And so when she'd see it, she would exclaim uh, this great, you know, happiness about it being our mountain. One of the most amazing things about Mount Hood really is, depending upon the angle that you are at, the location and the vantage point that you have, you, you, you get an entirely different scope of what the beauty and the grandeur of this mountain have to offer. So that when you are up at Timberline Lodge and you're in the parking lot and you look up at this mountain, you you kind of feel like it's a, a painting. You sort of want to touch it, right? And it just seems a little surreal. And then when you're, 
you know, when you're on the highway and you see it from a distance, especially from Portland, it comes to this amazing spire. It almost looks like it's a needle point up on top, doesn't it? And when you drive on Highway 35 and you come to the other side from Hood River, you look at it and you say, is this our mountain? It doesn't, it doesn't look like our mountain. It looks completely different. And of course, you know, as you've come flying into Portland, when you look over towards Mount Hood, it's this amazing, uh, it's towering because it's coming above all the hillsides, all the, the mountain ranges around it. Even we consider, you know, Hunchback to be this great rising ridge line. And it's child's play compared to this thing that rises above all where the trees grow up above the timberline. And of course, I could tell you that when you're climbing up on Mount Hood and about 4 or 5 a.m. as the sun is rising. There's a whole other vantage point, a glory to Mount Hood that it's very difficult to see, but it's the shadow. It's not even the mountain itself. It's the shadow that's cast that looks like a pyramid. And as the sun is rising, this pyramid shifts and changes. And of course, probably the most glorious view you can have is when you're up on top and you see these ridgelines, the legs of the mountain kind of going out in all directions. When you are up on top, it takes your breath away. Now, you're at altitude, so it takes your breath away. But it takes your breath away when you see the grandeur and the glory. And really to understand all this, you have to see the mountain from, from far away. You, you need to see it from a distance. You need to see it up close. You need to see it from down below, and you need to see it from up top. And the Apostle Paul, by the will of God, I think he's trying to take us to a vantage point to see the glories and the praises of God's glory and grace, and ultimately the the glory of God himself. And Paul, in this book, especially in these opening lines, he wants you, from a distance, up close, from down below, and up top, to see and experience the praise of this God from every vantage point and angle. Now, last week we opened that seeing the vantage point of God as our Heavenly Father, a particular angle which is extremely important for us, who this Heavenly Father in love, He predestined us to adoption. We saw that this wasn't a last-minute reaction of the father when he was pinned in the corner thinking, oh, what will I do? What will I do? No, this was the plan. This was the plan of God the father from before the creation of the heavens and the earth, before even the creation of time itself. It was his good intention to make us a people that would belong to him. So the father chose us for the purpose of this choosing was to lead us, as we read, to holiness and sanctification to be his people set apart. Now, if we began with the Father, and if you skim to the end of this very long verse, this very long sentence that we're in that runs from verse 3 to verse 14, at verse 13, you will see that we will come and start to conclude with the Holy Spirit. So if we begin with the Father, we end and conclude with the Holy Spirit, who do you suppose that will be right in the middle here for us to consider? Ah, the sun, the sun. So the movement of this long sentence, it's it's brilliantly crystal clear. It's so triune. It wraps up all of God himself, the Father, the Son, and conclude with the Holy Spirit. And, And so if you want a heads up on the flow for this morning, we will focus on the Father's plan that is worked out 
through the sun. And then from another vantage point here this morning, we will see through another angle the Father's plan worked out and confirmed through the, the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So let us begin looking up close, getting a vantage point here of the sun in particular, as we consider verses 7 through 12. Now, boy, is this long sentence, as I've said, a tough one because of just how verbose Paul is. So you could imagine that as I'm reading one of the commentators on this, trying to wrestle with this myself, I, I was, I, you could see, you could picture me smiling so big when I read one of the commentators saying this. He says, this song of celebration with which Paul begins the letter to the Ephesians strains analysis. What a great phrase. Strains analysis. Because in his exultant spirit, one great thought presses upon another and the doxology runs on and on in one colossal sentence. I thought, hallelujah, I'm not crazy. This is difficult because if you're like me, you want something to wrap your hands around. I need something to, to grasp a hold of. And so when I read something that says, you know, hey, we, we need to love our enemies. I think, okay, I, I can get my hands around that. Now, I, I mean, I don't always do it, but I, but I understand I can get my hands around it, right? When, when the When the scripture says something like, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, believe that and say, okay, I can get my hands around it. But when Paul here is stacking these words like praise and glory and this repeated phrase that we see throughout a lot of Pauline language in him, in him, meaning in Christ, it, it, it strains my mind to grab a hold of this. And so if you're like me, then no worries because the apostle Peter, as he was reflecting about the words of Paul, he says, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul, he says some things that are just difficult for us to get our mind around. We scratch our heads trying to, to grasp a hold of it. But let's, let's try to strain ahead with this in mind and consider verse 7 here together. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Uh, we, we then consider the need here, uh, the, one of the central words right in the middle of this verse, in the middle of this long section, is forgiveness. Now, the forgiveness that the, the Bible speaks of, it's in terms of our failure morally, our inability to be holy and set apart. The interesting issue of our time is that we don't have a sense or a feeling of guilt in, in general for our moral failure. The, the air that is percolating around us, it does not seem concerned about that. The, the great sin that is percolating in our air is the issue of controlling others. This is the air we breathe. Uh, the sin of enslaving someone against their will. Uh, slavery, I would argue at some sense, is the issue of our day. Now, not, of course, literal slavery, but the enslavement of people. So that all the way from very small issues that keep coming up in conversation, like enslaving people in the workplace, so that they're, they're caught in a dead-end job, working and working hard and never able to get anywhere, all the way up to issues of enslavement like human trafficking. And so that we see these are the, 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 the struggles that we have, the push and the pull that we, we face in our culture, and all the way from... Uh, Enslavement in the workplace 
to human trafficking and many of these issues, as you and I wrestle with them and think them through from a Christian lens, we say these are worth the fight. These are worthy fights. But we also need to recognize that enslavement of this world, it touches everyone here. No one here this morning is untouched by this. To be enslaved is to be gripped, to be seized, to be controlled by what we hope would free us. So that a man no longer spends 40 or 50 hours a week in the workplace, he spends 60 or 70. Why? Because he's seeking the accolades. He wants the kudos or maybe he just wants more and more money. The woman, she no longer occasionally enjoys a book about love. She flips from romance novel to romance novel, just trying to feel a tiny glimpse of what it means to be loved. She's seized by them. Or many are seeking pleasure and control from pornography. Someone who must always have uh, another bite, another bite of food or sweets. Uh, another, they keep adding things to their cart when they're at the big box store. They, they just keep, they got two carts. They got, they just keep throwing things in the stuff they don't even need, things they won't even open. Or another person is online and they're constantly hitting buy, buy, buy while the credit card bill keeps going up, up, up. And ultimately, they're trying to See that all these things that have whispered, I will get you what you're really looking for. I will give you what you really think you need. And ultimately, all these things just end up being ways of us to trying to replace God himself. Friend, there is a God-shaped hole in your heart that only God was ever meant to fulfill. Only God can fill this. How can we ultimately get out of this? Because all of us in some level, we're in a pickle. You can find worldly ways of trying to to come at, um, you can find very worldly ways of being enslaved, all the way to very Christian ways of being enslaved. Why this tangent of mine on, on slavery and addiction? Well, because where you find your ultimate joy and fulfillment touches everything. And if you're not finding your ultimate joy and fulfillment in God, in the gospel, in Christ, then you're in the wrong place. You are, in the terms of Ephesians chapter 1, trespassing. You're not where you should be. You are in sin because, you see that right here, he says that, verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Because we are in the wrong place. We are trying to find that fulfillment where we ought not. And we ultimately place our hands and ourselves into places that enslave us. And this is why, in the terms of this passage, we must be redeemed. This is why Jesus, the Son of Man, came to redeem us. This is another word that's right here in this verse. Redemption through his blood. Sometimes that that word that's used here behind this in the original is also translated as ransomed. So ransomed, redeemed. And this word for us can be somewhat challenging. We oftentimes have a sense of what it's trying to communicate to us. But I was helped uh, this last week when I was reading Kent Hughes on on a, on a helpful picture of redemption. He, he was talking about a, a popular well-known story where this boy, he goes... Uh, down by the lake and he's with his father and the father and him had constructed this model boat 
Uh, the boy loved going down to the lake, and so he, after many hours of putting together this beautiful boat, he puts it out into the water, and he has a string or something attached to the boat, and and he let loose a little bit too much of it, and the wind began to take this boat, and the and the and the model boat just keeps going out and further and further. No matter what the the father or the son do, they can't get this boat back, this model boat. And so day after day, the son goes down to the lake, hoping that it will have washed up on shore somewhere, uh, to no avail. And when he is walking through town one afternoon, he comes across one of those storefronts, you know, the kind that have the big display cases out front. And he sees in the display case his model boat. And so he goes inside to talk to the shop owner and he says, look, you got my boat. And the, and the gentleman says, I'm so sorry. That's my boat. I paid big money to a fisherman who brought it in, uh, here a few days ago. And so if you want that boat, you're going to have to buy it. And the boy, he is very upset, so he decides, well, I'm, I'm going to work for it. So he, go, he gets some extra chores, he gets some extra jobs, he raises up the funds, and he goes in and he buys the boat, the model boat. And when he's walking home with this under his arm, he says, you are twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. So it is with Jesus. So it is with your Savior. I think your Savior looks at you and he says, you're twice mine because I made you and because I bought you at the cost of his own life and blood. He redeemed you. So the picture is, don't mistake the picture. The picture is you were in the slave market, enslaved by your sin. Various passions and enslavements have all purchased us and tried to call us theirs. And the gods of this world have tried to grip us and make their ways our ways so that we would become fruitless, so that you become hollow, so that you would become unproductive, vain, futile. And this is why the language of redemption or ransom shows up through scripture over and over. So first Peter chapter one, we've been quoting a lot from first Peter one and it's good. Listen to, listen to the language here. Listen for our word redemption or ransom, same word. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Hebrews chapter 9, Christ entered once for all into the holy places by means of the blood of goats and calves, by the means of his own blood. Not uh, thus securing an eternal redemption. There's our word. Mark chapter ten forty five. The purpose statement that God entered into the that Christ entered into the world for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. And and then consider Revelation, uh, how it celebrates the fullness of all of this, saying that Christ is worthy to be praised. The, the scripture reads, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why? Because for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. The Bible circles again and again back to this idea about the blood being that which purchased us, because there is life in the blood. The, the Bible speaks about life being in the blood, and this is what gives dead men new life. It redeems them by the blood. You know, back um, 
East in the United States and actually several places as well in Europe, there's a lot of historical churches that were built in 1700s, 1800s. And a lot of them are just incredibly beautiful brick fronts, or in a lot of cases, they're just this stark white and, and they have the bell tower. You know what I'm speaking of? And, and uh, just this, uh, you know, rectangle, perfect bread box kind of shaped church with the, with the spire and perfectly white. And a lot of them have red doors. This, you know, either double doors that are red or a single big door that's red. And I recall trying to figure out what, what's with the red doors. Why do all these older churches back east and in Europe have these red doors? Well, lo and behold, it's because what they were trying to communicate by painting the door red was you entered by the blood. How is it that you got in to be with the community of Christ, his own people? It was you, the, the picture painted on the door was you only get in to this by Jesus's blood. What an image. And so I was thinking about our doors. How about we paint them red? And then I thought, but the roof is green. So people are going to look at us and say, what's up with the Christmas church? So, you know, should we ever replace the tin on the roof? Maybe we should consider. Redemption by his blood. Eternally taking us out of a futile life. Have you considered this? Have you pondered this? Have you reflected on all that is yours? The riches. This is, this is wealth and riches that belong to you in Christ. Have you pondered this? It was the purpose for which Christ came. It frees us from the enslaving things of the world. It gives us forgiveness in the Son, freedom from enslavement, an identity as adopted children, and a purpose that we should praise His glorious grace. And many of us say, well, Thomas, I'm so confused. If what you're saying is true, why isn't everyone a Christian? Why don't all desire this kind of redemption? And why doesn't everybody want this kind of forgiveness? Well, ask yourself, friend, how many people assume they understand what Christians believe and yet, in fact, don't really have a clue at all? I was taken aback again this last week. My friend, he called me and we were having this conversation and he was talking about another gentleman that he was talking about the gospel to. And through this acquaintance, he was able to sit down for about an hour to two hours with this friend and begin to to discuss. And And this gentleman turns to my friend and says, well, now wait, you're a Christian, right? And he says, well, let me explain my understanding. My understanding is as long as I'm a decent person and, and I'm good enough that I, 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 as I, I hope that whoever's up there, they'll just look at my life and say that he's been good enough. And so my friend went on to explain forgiveness in Christ and the blood that needs to cover your sin, just as we were looking at here in Ephesians. And after a while of him explaining this, this man was a bit dumbfounded when he realized what he had assumed about Christianity was wrong. So he piped up and he put it this way. He says, let me get this straight. What you are saying is that a murderous dictator who repents and turns to Christ, they will receive forgiveness and go to heaven. While me, who's trying to live a decent life, I pay my taxes and I don't drive too fast. But if I don't accept Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin, that I will eternally go to hell. Is this what you're trying to tell me? And my friend said, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to tell you. 
And you know what's amazing to me? The man at that point should have done all sorts of things. He should have said, this conversation's over. He should have just got up and walked away. But what was amazing, he says, huh, tell me more. Tell me more. And I just, it made me think, and I started thinking about you and me and and us here. And I was thinking, how many of us with our neighbors and our friends and the people up here in the mountain, how many of them that when they think they know the gospel, but if we had these sort of conversations with them would say, huh, tell me more. Oh, I'm sure there'll be some to get up and walk away. Oh, I'm sure there'll be some that say, I don't want to hear any more of this nonsense. But by God's grace, there might be some that just say, would you tell me more about Jesus Christ? Wouldn't that be awesome? And maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking that. Maybe you're thinking, I need to hear more. I need to have understanding. And if that's you, I just encourage you, speak with a fellow Christian here. Uh, Reach out to to an elder. Uh, We love talking about redemption and the forgiveness that we have in Christ. To which Paul says, this whole thing that I've been talking about, this was all at one point kind of a, a mystery that's now been revealed. So we see that here in the preceding verses 8 through 10. Let me read let me read 7 again. But I just want to bring this to mind where he says in 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now here, friends, again, this mystery that Paul is speaking about, it's not a mystery in that it is something that we cannot understand. The the idea is not that this is a mystery in which we're we're never going to wrap our minds around it. The, The picture that he has when he uses that phrase here is that this mystery It's something that once was not known, but now has been made known. So that what we, what we see now, um, just as if you were to, to watch a, a good mystery show like Sherlock Holmes, some of the best Sherlock Holmes is not when the mystery is unknown through the whole thing. And then at the very, very end, you find out it was the butler. No, it's, it's, it's far better. Almost if it, if that reveal kind of comes halfway through or two thirds the way through. Why? Because once you realize it was the butler, not the maid or whatever the story is, you then begin to watch the unfolding of that reality come out through the rest of the story. How is this going to conclude now that you know that what really is going on? And this is the way it is with the gospel. It was hidden. It's now been revealed, and the joy that you and I have in this moment, in our time, is we get to see the unfolding, working out of that reality coming to play. And we find a united, one singular people all coming in through the same red door that are a united people, though we're wildly different, so that we're, as in the terms of Ephesians, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave, free, all these things coming together so that we would be one united people in God. Which brings together, as Paul says, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I was wondering at first, is Paul just using flowery language? You know, he does, he is kind of almost speaking poetical here. Is he sort of just saying, you know, kind of like all the things, man, all the things, just join them all together, stuff in heaven, stuff on earth. But I think in terms of how Paul unpacks the rest of this letter, And he references again and again things on earth and things in heaven so that in 
chapters 1, 3, 4, and 6, he's speaking specifically about earthly things. Um, and he uses that phrase. And then in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6, he mentions heavenly things. And, and it got me thinking, I'm wondering if a better angle or vantage point is to view this in terms of Christ's work fulfilling the plans of heaven which join together with the needs of earth. Do you see that? So that these two realms kind of come together. They're not working and existing out of sync, but the very purposes of heaven through the gospel and the needs of man on earth and what we see worked out, these are coming together in fulfillment all to the praise of his glorious grace. To what you say, okay, well, praise the glory of God's grace, the Father's plan to send the Son of redemption and this movement of Paul, uh, it then comes to a final resting place as he praises the sealing of the spirit. And we'll see that we land here on the spirit. He continues with the, with the son's redemption here, but look how it lands with the spirit. So I'll pick up at verse 11 through 14 here, just to bring this to mind in him. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Recently, when my wife was at the women's retreat, um, I'm thinking, what can I do with the, with the kiddos, especially with the younger three? What can I do with them to keep them busy, keep them happy? And so I concocted this amazing plan. I was going to load them up in the van and we were going to go down to the video arcade in town and, you know, play some video games. But I thought to myself, aha, let me, let me make this better. Um, let me surprise them because I knew the younger three had not played laser tag before. So I don't know if you know what laser tag is, but just in summary, you go into a warehouse that's darkened and you got these neon lights and you run around with a backpack and a little laser gun and you're shooting other people making points. It's a very Christian thing to do. <laughs> so we, we are planning this out and I call my wife and I said, here's what I'm looking at doing. And she says, this is a great plan. And then the neighbors, as I'm loading, getting the van warmed up, the kids are inside. The neighbors are walking by and they said, what are you up to? And I said, I'm going to, I'm going to take the kids down to laser tag. And they, they just laughed. And, uh, you know, we get in the van, but I don't tell them. I just said, we're going to go play video games. And so we get in and I act like I'm just kind of, you know, paying for tickets or whatever to play some video games. And, and then, you know, I kind of turn and act like this is nonchalant and sort of like, hey, what do you, what do you guys think we, we should do some laser tag? And now they don't, a few of them weren't really sure even what this is. Um, but it's okay. And they started getting excited. And then when we get in and we're running around and we're playing and we're laughing and giggling and it's the best time ever. And then one of my daughters, when she got out, she says, dad, I know exactly what I'm going to do for my birthday now. And so I was glad. Okay. When, when, and you know, at, at this point you wonder, well, they had such a wonderful time, but when, when did this all come about? Did I decide that randomly on the spot when they were putting pressure on me to do something new? No, no, this was my plan long before I had orchestrated this whole thing in advance to be a, a surprise for them. It was all you could say predestined according to my will to ensure that this would happen. And friends, this is what we saw last week, that God too, he had a plan. 
a plan to save you from before the foundation of the world. And it's so good to ensure that it comes about. He says, I've sealed it into my plans. There is an assurity to what he is doing. So that when we read here, there's an inheritance that's coming to us that is wildly beyond our imaginations. You and I, we can subtly wonder, like, is there any sort of guarantee to this? I mean, is there, if I'm following Christ and I'm trusting in Christ, what kind of guarantee or reality is there to this? Because in our time, we, we, we suffer with issues of guarantee. You buy something, you put a lot of money down, you're like, what kind of a warranty or guarantee does this thing have? And you go and you're reading in the fine print and you find yourself over and over frustrated that all the, basically they've worked themselves out of any sort of guarantee. There's no guarantee. There's no ceiling of the promise that they will make good on their claims. And you read the fine print here with this and you realize the fine print in the gospel, it's not the Lord working out of his promises to us. It's him doubling down. So the fine print friends is not just a fine print. It's a person. The fine print is God himself. It's his Holy spirit whom he has sealed in you to ensure that you will remain with Christ, that you will continue through to the end who truly believe. And So sure is this that he wants to ensure that we would have the fullness of his redemption. So you see that there at the very end at verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I I recall going down to the title company when my wife and I, we bought our, our first home. We were so excited and, and we were overwhelmed by the paperwork. And as you're, for those of you who've done the purchase of the home, you, you see this, um, seal of the title company at the top of like every page and you're initialing and you're signing and you're initialing and you're signing and, and everything is formal and it's completely sealed. And we'd realized the sellers had signed, the title company had signed, we had signed, we got the copies. It was a done deal. It was for sure. There was nothing at that moment that was going to undo all the signatures, it was a full purchase sealed done. And yet we weren't inside the home yet. We didn't even have the keys yet. It would be hours later before we'd be able to meet up with our realtor. And then the realtor, you know, those goofy gray boxes, they would undo it and get you, give you the key. And then eventually you'd have the keys and you would be able to go through the front door and the home was really yours. Now, these hours in between, the signing, the sealing, it's sealed, it's done, and the entrance into the home, those were hours in between. And you need to know, Christian, that that is the Christian life, is those hours in between, because the Holy Spirit has sealed in you, and yet we have not fully entered into the inheritance that is ours in Christ But this was the plan. The Holy Spirit would seal. The blood of Christ would ensure that it is ours. The plan of the Father will not be thwarted. It is good as done. And we will inherit it fully. One day, you and I will walk through those doors to our new home. And who knows? Maybe it will be one big red door that you walk through. And you will find the feast waiting on the table for you. Our Heavenly Father our Savior Jesus sitting with us, the saints and the loved ones who've gone on before us, our family that's innumerable, that's like the sand of the sea. 
And you see how Paul, in this introductory sentence, he wants you to see the glories of God that would lead you to praise. And this is why he's coming around this from all these different angles, so that you would see God's amazing grace from up close, from a distance, from down below, and from up top. All of this so that we would have an experience of seeing it, but also experiencing it beginning now. So I ask you, what is holding you back? What is holding you back from rejoicing at this this morning? What, what in your life is so worth gripping onto that would rob you of this inheritance? I, I've quoted it before. It's a great bluegrass song. What would you give in exchange for your soul? So good that we have it, knowing as good as it is with the Spirit now and the knowledge of Christ now, that we should leave feeling invincible because in Christ we are. The promise of this is good is done. So to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let me read 13 and 14 again. Let these words, Christians, settle on your heart this morning. In him. Also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquired the possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm sure several of you know, stamped up here on the, the pulpit is a little placard with a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I look at every Sunday morning. And it says, step aside, sir, that they may see Jesus. In other words, Spurgeon reminding preachers to get out of the way and just make much of Christ and the gospel. Spurgeon means get out of the way and praise him, praise him, praise him. Make much of his grace, which makes much of him. Because Jesus says, you're twice mine now because I made you. Because I bought you. It was my father's plan. It was my mission. And it was my spirit's promise. It's as good as done. Would you pray with me? Father, would you, by your spirit, seal in us a bold confidence. that No matter what the waves of life bring us. No matter what comes over our deck, our ship will remain. And we pray, Lord, that we would have the kind of joy, uh, the kind of uh, triumphant uh, praise that Paul has here. Would you make that by your spirit ours this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.